Hey friends, welcome to episode four of Something Borrowed, a weekly podcast where I have a different guest come and talk about their work from the worlds of poetry, music, and this week, for the first time, comedy. That's right, we have the wonderful Bilal Safar, who is a comedian, an actor, an acting coach, as we go in to talk about, and more importantly, a friend. Uh, last week with Birdspeed, if you've not listened, I recommend it highly. We talked about the importance of being able to lament, being able to acknowledge your sadness, especially in these unusual times. And I think on a personal note, I've I've come through that. I was feeling better this week and, and who better to celebrate that with than the wonderful Belaza Farm. So I hope you enjoy our conversations. Being a comedian, there's there's fewer set pieces, but we talk about what it means to perform with or without an audience. Uh, we talk about the first time we met, how to perform in, in a context of faith. And I get him to do my favorite joke about horses, amongst other things. Uh, the poem I'm going to start off with this week is 59. It is one of my oldest poems for the Something Old section, because I was going to be performing in Soho Theatre this week as part of my I Am 10,000 tour. Hopefully it will happen again, but for now the next best thing is to perform it to you right now. 59 wakes up on the wrong side of the bed. Realises all his hair is on one side of his head takes just under a minute. To work out that that's because of the way that he slept he finds some clothes and gets dressed. Now he can't help but look in the mirror and be subtly impressed how he looks rough around the edges and yet casually messed. As he glances out the window, he sees it's hardly his best width of 60 from across the street. Now, 60 was beautiful, perfectly trimmed cuticles, dressed in something suitable and never rude or crude at all, unimprovable. Right on time as usual, more onky than a snooker ball, but liked to play it super cool. And 59 wanted to tell her that he knew her favourite flower. He thought of her every second, every minute, every hour, but he knew it would not work. He would never get the girl. Because although she lived across the street, they came from a different ones of 59, and my 60s perfectly round figure, 60 thought 59 was odd. You see, one of his favourite films was 101 Dalmatians. She preferred the sequel. He romanticised the idea they were star-crossed lovers. They could overcome the odds and evens because they had each other, while she maintained that she was been by a mother that separate could not be equal. And though at the time he felt stupid and dumb for trying to love a girl controlled by her stupid mummy, she'd have been comforted by that simple Sunday 59 away from 60 and he left with the one. And sure enough, after two months of moping around, 61 days later, 61 was who he found. He had lost his keys and his parents were out, so one day after school he ran into our houses, he noticed the slightly wonky numbers on the door. He wondered why he never introduced himself before. She let him in, his jaw dropped in awe, 61 was like 60 with a little bit more. She had prettier eyes and an approachable smile. And like him, rough around the edges, casual style. And like him, everything was in disorganised paths. And like him, I didn't mind her friend stayed a while because she was like him. And he liked her. He reckoned she would like him as she knew he was like her. And it was different this time. I mean, this girl was wicked. So we plucked up the coverage and asked for her digit. She said, I'm 61. He grinned. said, I'm 59 and... Today I've had a really nice time, so tomorrow, if you wanted, you could come over to mine. She said, sure. She loved talking to someone just as quirky. So she agreed to this unofficial first date. In the end, he was only ready one minute early, but that didn't matter because she arrived one minute later. And from that moment on, there was non-stop chatter. How they loved X Factor. How they had two factors. How that did not matter. Distinctiveness made them better. By the end of the night, he knew they met together on one day. She was talking about stuck-up 60. 
She noticed that 59 looked a bit shifty. He blushed and told her of his crush, the best thing that never happened because it led to us. And 61 was clever, see, not prone to jealousy. She looked him in the eyes and she told him quite tenderly, you're 59, I'm 61. Together we combine to become twice what 60 could ever be. And at this point, 59 had tears in his eyes. He was so glad to have this one-of-a-kind girl in his life. He told her the very definition of being prime was the one himself could his heart divide and she was the one he wanted to give his heart to. She said she felt the same and now she knew the films were half true because that was not real love. That love was just a sample. When it came to real love, they were a prime example. So without further ado, I am going to invite on our guest for the week, the one and only Bilal Zafar. How are you, Bilal Zafar? Congratulations on the poem. Hi, everyone watching. So this format, we go something old, new, borrowed blue. I'm not, you were saying it's, it's different as a comedian. I was saying as a poet, you're quite used to performing to nothing sometimes you know you hope people will respond if it's funny they might laugh but I've done enough gigs in schools to learn to just carry on through the silence and pretend that they're quiet because they're enjoying it but I won't make you just do old routines to nothing no what what I do is very much for laughter and I really like laughs and (laughs) (laughs) when they don't happen that's very sad like that's a tragedy really What's the smallest audience you've performed to? Oh, maybe like three, I think. Were they laughing? Usually, yeah, but I, I don't I do not do gigs if it's like one person or two. Like I pull it, I say no. Yeah. But, but three is enough. I think this was a long time ago. My first ever stand-up gig, I think it was seven people in the audience and they were all comedians. So, you know. In the spirit of something old, you were nominated for Best Newcomer in what I'm guessing is your first show? Yeah. And then we met up in Edinburgh. I don't and remember where we met. I just, I remember we got to know each other because we were in the same room one after the other and we just stayed and watched your show lots. But I think we sort of had met before then. So in 2018, me, you and Chris were in the same venue. So I'd see you every day. So there was a good five minutes of bonding. But I'd met you before. But here's the thing. Forget about the award nomination. We've all been nominated for a... It doesn't matter. I think the reason that I don't remember meeting you guys is because... It's a good story. I think we met in 2017 at the Edinburgh Fringe. That was the same year I did Greenbelt Festival for the first time. So when I met you, I would have had a cough. This is why I think I can't remember. So I went off to do Greenbelt Festival. I'm sure a lot of people watching this uh, are familiar with it. Probably one of the funnest festivals you can do, to be honest. So I got to that festival and I had this cough that I picked up in Edinburgh. And I was feeling quite bad. Like I kept falling asleep in the like, uh, <laughs> in our little backstage artist bit. Sure. And it's not normal to just fall asleep, really. Yeah. Like I think that's fainting, really, when you think about it. <laughs> So I think that's what was happening <laughs> in hindsight. And I went yeah. over to the paramedic at Greenbelt, lovely people. Yeah. And they said to me, you're badly dehydrated. Um, don't do any shows. And I had two gigs. So I was going to do two hour-long shows pretty much back to back. That's what I was at Greenbelt for, which I was really excited about. And they said, hey, yeah, don't do a gig. That You're not, you're not well. And I had to drink in a Dyrolite. Yep. <laughs> the doctor made me drink 
paramedic made me, I think made me drink a litre of Dyrolite to try and rehydrate myself. And I did it and my blood, was it my blood pressure or my temperature? I don't know. One of those was still too high. And they were like, okay, don't do a gig. And I went off and I did the gig, <laughs> which I should say for people listening, don't do that. Don't, don't do what I did. <laughs> That's a bad idea. But I wasn't thinking straight, basically. And I did, I did an hour long show and then I had a little break and I did another hour in another tent and I, it was a lot of fun. But the coughing was getting worse. Got back to London and um, I got out of King's Cross Station and I realised, I had a massive suitcase with me, I realised I could barely walk anymore. It was quite a weird feeling. I had to get a black cab all the way back to my house in East London, which was, I think it was like £60, but I had to do it. Then I went to hospital the next day and the doctors did an x-ray and they said, you've got such obvious pneumonia that the x-ray, they wouldn't even show it to like medical students because it was too obvious. <laughs> <laughs> But it wasn't obvious to you at the time. No, I thought I was just coughing, you know. Sure. On top of that, I guess it's a nice ending to the story. The doctor that told me I had pneumonia was kind of smiling a little bit as he told me. And he seemed kind of happy and I was quite confused. And then he said, by the way, I was at your Edinburgh show a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> Which is, I'm not like a celebrity <laughs> at all. I'm, I'm nothing. So that's a weird coincidence as well. But yeah, and then I couldn't work for like two months after that. So um, so fond memories of us meeting at Greenbelt and you nearly dying. I think that's why I don't remember meeting you because around the time I met you and Chris, I would have been in my weird state. And I don't, I don't really remember loads of stuff about that time. And here's something quite sad. When I was recovering, I was watching the Lego movie and I had to stop watching it because one bit made me laugh so hard that it was hurting my lung. That's probably the saddest thing I've ever heard. Pretty sad. Yeah, sorry everyone. I thought that was more of a fun story. That's a re well, that's a nice something old story. And that brings us to something new. So I will just break up our chat with poems to kind of mark each section. One thing that's happening in amongst everyone being locked down is obviously people are still having birthdays. And two people reached out and told me that, well, it was two sisters of people he said that their brother and sister respectively were having birthdays and they, they couldn't be there for whatever reason. So the first one is for Jess from Sophie. I think they're watching. Um, and it just, it just goes like this. To a sister called Jess, you are simply the best. Even if the things you touch end up in a bit of a mess. You spend your life fighting for justice. I don't think it's a stretch to say that you are the kindest person I've ever met. Although in moments you have shown you are a bit of a klutz. I hope you enjoyed the Harry Baker gig with your mum. You're never slipping up when it comes to things that you love, and through it all you give the most brilliant hugs. You'll take the law into your hands, because that is your job. You'll take a paw into your hands, because you really like dogs. And though words can say so much, sometimes it's certainly hard. The next bit can only be expressed through interpretive dance. It's more than just your socks on this particular journey. Because any time I'm with you feels like Christmas come early. And while I'm sad I couldn't be there and I missed your birthday, I just count myself lucky I was your sister in the first place. That's poem number one. Uh, and the fun story attached to that is that Jess is a fan of my poetry and booked to go and see a Harry Baker gig. And it was a different Harry Baker. So I don't know who that is or what they were doing. Um... But the second poem is a birthday poem, also requested by someone's sister, but this is for someone that I know. 
Um, this is for Justin, who I think is watching, who I met at a festival and he since uh, has, has been a part of my life because he owns a barge that makes pizza. And he served us pizza just before me and Chris did a gig at Henley Festival. And it was us and John Robbins and Rose Matafeo. And two of those three people have gone on to win Best Show of Edinburgh Fringe. So our time will come. But also he loaned his barge to us for my stag do, which is very exciting. And so this is a, a poem for Justin, who is is amazing. And it's got some dodgy pizza puns, but I, I'm... I hope you'll appreciate them because that's like comedy and you appreciate comedy. This poem sending peace and love to one of life's hippies, even though he's nowhere near approaching the 60s. But winter he is barging around sweeping the chimneys and summer his barge is bringing pizza delivery. When he's around you, he will warm you through like some margaritas. margaritas. Though unexpected like pineapple, oh, how I enjoy our meetings. You are my favourite bearded man, except maybe for cheeses. And on top of it all, you're a good egg, like Fiorentina. Roger that, the pizza pirate's flag is properly jolly. Full of love for Lauren, Lily, Holly, Poppy and Ollie. You take kindness to the maxi and not just your doggy. And still you make sure your Yorkshire pudding's bottom's not soggy. So even though your boat's a place that's able to roam, any table you bring homemade food is made into home. So when this is over, we will celebrate with a roast. For now, we'll have to make do with raising a toast to Justin. There we go. It's a nice little birthday poem. What's your favourite pizza? My favourite pizza? I really like when there's potato on a pizza. Because I think if anyone does that, it means that they are confident in their ability. So when is pizza? I don't think I've there's had There's one in uh, Francomanca. Does a good potato pizza. Franco Manco's. What's it called? A, a, like number four, maybe? <laughs> number four. What's your favourite pizza? I don't know. I was just thinking, like, I don't like anything that weird. I think vegetarian pizzas are better than uh, yes. meat ones. Your birthday, I couldn't come. Oh, yeah. It was exciting being part of a WhatsApp group with your friends. Oh, yeah. One of those friends is Josie Long, yeah. who brings us on to something new. Because you've got a new thing, which is your YouTube series of acting lessons. Yes. First one featuring Josie Long. Yes. And that's because you yourself are a professional actor. Wow. Is that still something new? I went to see you in a Christmas film and, and I was very excited about it. Oh, you did? <laughs> um, I am technically an actor, yes, in that I get auditions and then sometimes I fluke my way onto a TV or film. But really, I mean, I'm not. I'm just a comedian. You know what I mean? Yeah, sure. But you know, at the start, I like how you, before I came on, you were saying, oh, we've had a poet do some poems and a, and a musician do songs. And then the next guest, we're just going to chat because <laughs> I don't have anything. Well, your chat is comedy because you're, you have the gift of being naturally funny. Thanks, man. I was going to ask, though, when you come up with new stuff, so I write a poem and it kind of feels like it gets to a point where it's finished. And then I'll perform it to people, get some kind of feedback and maybe tweak it. Mm -hmm. When you come up with something new, whether it's a joke or a funny idea, do you trust it there and then or do you have to try it out in front of people? It totally depends what it is. 
and also I think it depends how important the subject is to you like uh, for example I've got a whole new a bit about plastic surgery and like body image because I had my nose straightened look how symmetrical that is so I had my nose done for my breathing because I could I couldn't breathe out of one side like forever and the thing is I can breathe better and everything but it looks better than it did and I feel better but you're not really meant to admit that you know what I mean because like you're meant to love yourself how you are I can't tweet that oh I went to Turkey had a nose job and I feel great now (laughs) (laughs) yeah sure yeah so I and I find that all quite interesting and so I think like that there's a whole chunk of material I've written about that and because that's so personal to me like body image stuff and I've never really talked about it I've always kind of kept it to myself so that's always going to be quite good or promising because it's something I really care about more than a random anecdote that I've just come up with, if you know what I mean. Yeah. But then also, like, to be honest, the way that I write, because like you've seen me before, I like, I talk a lot of nonsense on stage sometimes and I improvise yeah. and sometimes it just comes out of there. And, and even like, there'll be times when I've written some long bit and the actual punchline at the end of it and doesn't get that much, but there's a bit before that really resonates with everyone. And then that ends up being the punchline. So I can't just type it all out and like, you know, like um, our friend in common, Rob Alton. Yes. He like writes out an entire Edinburgh show. Yeah, I've seen him reading it in tiny, tiny writing. Yeah. Whereas I just work off bullet points. So I'll have a bunch of ideas and then I'll just sort of play around with it. Um, When I try and write it all out, it just doesn't really work. That's fair. I've learned to trust myself more because the way I got into poetry was through poetry slams where you'd perform and then people would hold up a scorecard afterwards telling you how good they thought it was. So that's quite an instant feedback mechanism. And if anything didn't get a high score, I think, oh, well, that's just rubbish. When obviously with comedy or poetry or anything, different audiences are different. And sometimes it just takes you a while to get good at performing something. So even a well-written joke or poem won't necessarily land first time round. So I've learned yeah. to get better at just trusting what I've written but I think part of that process is just then believing that the audience is wrong if they don't like it. And I think there's some kind of balance in between because I don't want to get to a point where I don't care what people think because almost everything I write is to be performed and to get feedback from. And I think that's such a useful process. But I think, like you say, if it's something important to you, it feels like it's a bit easier to, to plough through with it even when it's not getting those laughs. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't always work. So, like, for example, I was at Leicester Comedy Festival. I did, I previewed a brand new show twice, and I did loads of gigs, and most of them went really nicely. Like, they they went quite well, and I was trying new bits, so it was all quite good. And then I had one gig right at the end, which was in a shisha lounge. It's like a pub for, for Muslim men, because they're not meant to drink, so instead they just, like, have this flavoured tobacco. and sit around it's weird right but it was in this place and so the problem i have is that my sort of stage demeanor is quite downbeat like the way i talk now it's kind of the same you know um and usually that's good but if an audience sees me that don't if they don't usually watch much comedy and they see me they just think i can't really do it (laughs) (laughs) so So I had that happen. I was only doing like a 10 minute set or something, but it was just awful. They just didn't get anything I was doing. And I felt bad about it for 10 minutes or probably like an hour. 
And then I remembered, no, no, I think I'm still quite good. It just didn't work here, and that's fine. I think the more good gigs you've had in total, the more you can like have that as your happy place if it's not going well and say, oh, yeah, that's because of the... Not even the audience, maybe it's the scenario, maybe it's whatever. I think that's fair. Um, so to transition from something new to something borrowed, oh, yeah. your new series is about being an excellent acting coach. So I thought you could teach me to do some acting live in front of these people. What I thought I'd do with this, because this is a live show, I was going to, I wanted to do some acting with you. Because yes. I was just going to find an old script and we act that out. But I thought instead, let's try role playing something. Sure. Again, I was going to come up with the scenario, but I thought because we have an audience here, they can decide what the situation is. Wow, that's powerful. So full on improv. Just to clarify, this is something borrowed because we're borrowing ideas from the audience. Yes. And then down the line, this will be our Edinburgh improv troupe. Thanks for making that work. Any scenario, anything, go ahead. Just to give context to Bilal, he, he plays a very good ex-boyfriend. What am I ex-boyfriend in? In Last Christmas. I'm not her ex-boyfriend. Were you not? I'm just a guy. I need to watch it again. So, shall I tell you some gossip, everyone? The film Last Christmas, which I have a very small role in, Amelia Clark stays in my house. That's what my character does. I'm like a friend of hers. And this is a, a giant name drop. Emma Thompson, who sort of co-directed the film, told me that my character is gay. I don't know why, like it didn't... How did you channel that into your performance? Just did what I'd do anyway. I'm looking through the um, suggestions. Okay, you can choose one. Let's see, Harry's the judge at a poetry slam and he's the contestant. Well, the problem is I can't rhyme any words. That's fine, poetry doesn't need to. I think you should definitely be a poetry slammer. And I can judge you. Uh, supermarket, last vegetarian pizza on the shelf. Right, what, what are we doing? Sorry, Harry. I think you should perform a slam poem about trying to get the last vegetarian pizza in a supermarket. And then I can sort of judge you. Okay, but could we do it like, you're not the judge. It's like, I'm coming off stage and I'm leaving. And you're like, hey, you got potential. Okay, yeah. Yeah. So we'll come in with you sort of finishing off your poem. Because I'm very keen to hear this. And there's no more pizza on the shelf. What about myself? Am I just a pizza? Thanks, everyone. Um, buy my cassette tapes. Uh, cheers. Uh, hi there. Oh, what? Are you going to ridicule me as well, like everyone else that doesn't appreciate my No, I just wanted to say you're clearly very new at this, but I think you've got lots of potential. And I'm actually a very famous poet, so that means a lot coming from me. Really? What's your deal, man? Well, you know, man, I'm just trying to get by as a poet. Um, I work at the Argos. And it's tough. No one appreciates my stuff. Everyone ridicules me. They, they, um, they cut my mic when I'm doing a poem. Okay, I've got two tips for you. One you got to channel that pain. And two, never forget where you came from. Thank you. Scene. That was really good. Yeah? Oh, no one said anything during that. That Because they were stunned into silence. <laughs> they were stunned. That's good. Okay, one of my favourite bits from your show 
is at the start you ask people what other stuff they liked and then they would tell you and you would just be quite dismissive of it and I found that very funny and I think it's because knowing you you're very friendly but like you say you're quite downbeat so it just feels very rude and so I thought I should say that I started doing that when I didn't know I'd have any success in comedy if you know what I mean so when I did my first show I'd say to the audience oh what else have you seen at the Edinburgh Fringe and whatever show they'd say I'd say ah not for me (laughs) and that would get such a like big laugh because I guess it was unexpected for me to just be rude about random comedians but then I went on to actually the month went amazing for me so now looking back it looks like I was just being horrible (laughs) but I did it because I didn't think I'd actually get anywhere in comedy a bit like the spoken word character I think I wondered if you could channel some of that energy because I'm going to do my something borrowed now Okay. Last week, I did a Zoom poetry performance to a primary school of my 59 poem. And then the students went away and wrote poems about numbers, sort of inspired by it. So because this is so wholesome, it's sort of 12-year-olds writing poems about numbers. I love it. I'm going to share some of their poems. And I just wondered if you could sort of give your feedback afterwards. Wait, do you want me to be harsh about the... No, that that would be horrible. I just want you to sort of give your honest response. Okay, yeah, first, by Simon Cowell. This first one is by uh, Muhammad Ayin Patel. It's about number zero. Once upon a time, there was a number called zero. All he did was sit in his bungalow. Everything inside it was round, yet nothing of it would astound. Everyone made fun of him, especially stuck up 100, that show-off. He treated zero like an absolute shove-off. Then one day Zero had an idea, it was, to go to Ikea. Next page. He would get some new things for his house, and while picking he was not shy as a mouse. He picked the most brightest and extravagant shades, however they looked so grand it was like he owned maids. So after Zero bought everything he could, he went home and there everyone stood, laughing at him, calling him names. But when they saw what Zero had bought, they all stood there frozen and distraught. Zero had proved them all wrong. He could do what he wanted before, he just didn't show it. The lesson of this poem is do not judge people before you know them properly. It's very good. It's pretty good. I, um, I really like a story of um, someone who's like, everyone thinks they're rubbish and then actually they're the best. Yeah. You know? Like, uh, like uh, Tobey Maguire in uh, Spider-Man. This one is by Iltaf Aisha, 29. When I'm 29, I will be absolutely fine and I will hang clothes on the washing line. I will relax outside but never drink wine. When I'm 29, I will get a horse and name it Caroline. She would be magnificent and elegant. 29 is a prime number and I think it should be the prime minister. The number 29 is the dazzling number of them all. I like horses but love the number 29. And there they've used the horse emoji for the bit where it says horses. So that's sort of a very modern poem. And I like that because that's pretty much how I started writing, was I just think of things that rhymed and went through. Any thoughts on that one? Isn't that what poems are? Well, not always. I mean, your one was very powerful. Oh, my one about the pizza. About the pizza, yeah. That was very good as well. I'm 28, so... Me too. When's your birthday? March the 19th. I'm October. 16th. Yeah. How did you know my birthday? (laughs) It's a recurring thing on my calendar. Because I missed it last year. I thought I should be... Oh, right. 
yes, that was a very good poem. Point. The final part, something blue, I would like to talk to you about blue comedy. I thought this is a phrase lots of people knew. Someone's asked, where is the grace interval? That's the key feature of this. Here is. Hi, guys. One and any grace. Sorry, I was watching Hi, in the kitchen. How are you, Blau? I'm okay. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. Yeah. How is it watching from up there? Yeah, it's good. It's good. I made a very nice guacamole. Lovely. What's been your favourite bit so far? Um, I, I mean, I... I think enjoy is the wrong word, but I enjoyed Bilal's story about um, uh, green belt and, you know, pneumonia and fainting or sleeping or, you know, forgetting you and then remembering you. So that was a nice time. Um, We met at green belt and I didn't remember our first meeting. So it's it's sort of like a cyclical thing. Come full circle. You both met at green belt, did you say? We yeah, did. Harry's rem- Harry's memory of us meeting is superimposed from what I've told him about when we met because he doesn't actually remember. But I great. don't remember meeting but... Harry either. I yeah. know, right? Common theme. Anyway, I'm going to leave you to your thing. It's been yeah. a pleasure. See ya. It's like Inception. It's like you've been implanted in yeah. in my life. Well, it's like I've always been there now. I mean, you don't remember meeting your wife. Well, I've met her since loads of times. It's just that first one. Mm. I don't know if I remember. I didn't even have pneumonia though. Last Green Belt is probably one of my favourite gigs ever. I was on at midnight and there was like 600 people sitting there so for the good. whole hour. Have you ever done a Latitude Festival? Yes. Yeah, like I did that. I did the cabaret tent at Latitude and I think there was like 10 people. There were people coming in and out and Dara O'Brien was on at the same time as me on the big stage. And people were like leaving to go watch him. You know what I mean? But Not my point big. is, latitude is like a highly rated thing. But Greenbelt was like, like 600 people watched me for an hour at midnight. Yeah. And, and they all stayed there and listened. Like, yeah, Greenbelt's the that best. That was mad. Oh, I really love it. So to transition this to something blue, being at Greenbelt, you're, you're comfortable in a religious context, but also in a sort of family-friendly context. And I think to label comedy as as clean has certain connotations. But we've both done mixed bill gigs where we've suddenly been told there's children in the audience or it's in a church or whatever. And other comedians tend to freak out at those points or don't know how to perform. Whereas one thing we have in common is we've both been booked to play at a conference to just 200 vicars at once. So (laughs) what's, what's your experience of that and those audiences compared to sort of general ones shall i tell you my vicar's bit <laughs> is yeah. that what you want yes please more than <laughs> anything sorry. so yes that is true i did i don't know what it's called it's this thing in derby and i got that off the back of my first green belt actually a lady got me to do this event in derby and i knew it was a christian thing i didn't know what it was i got there it turns out it was just me doing an hour for 200 vicars and I don't know if that's all the vicars, you know, I'd never met one before and now they're all there suddenly. But the bit that I loved was, and it was, by the way, it was really fun. Like I really enjoyed it. You know, it was a bit scary at first because it was just a bit weird, but it was, you know, it's great. The guy emceeing the gig. So normally at a comedy gig, you have someone like in between acts, like keeping everyone hyped up. The guy emceeing the gig was the bishop, which I don't know if that's normal. I don't know if that's what you always do. But um, yeah, and he was smashing it. He was doing all the Christian bantering, really good stuff, right? 
And just before he brought me on, he thought he'd have a bit of fun, a bit of like bantery fun with the audience about me. And he read like random credits online about me and stuff. Uh, he like read them out. And just as I was getting closer to the stage, he thought he'd have more fun. And he said, talking about me, he said, he's an Arsenal fan and loads of people booed, you know, for football bantery. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then he said, and he's a Muslim and no one booed, but it felt like they were about to. <laughs> it was the same uh, tone of like, Arsenal fan, boo, Muslim, boo, oh, not allowed. Just similar energy. You know? I like your Vicar story. Thanks. Thanks. It's a good, it's a good, um, it's, that's a good anecdote to do to a, uh, like, a, a Christian audience or not a Christian, like a, um, you know, an interfaith type audience. That's good. It's like solid. Okay. I've got something blue. Because I do this every week, I have to keep thinking of new interpretations of blue. But this one I'm happy with because it's inspired by the Eiffel 65 song Blue, Dabba Dee Dabba Die, which was the first single I ever bought. And I've just recently had it in my head and I've been trying to fit other things to that tune. And so in the spirit of sort of Greenbelt and religion, I thought I would try and retell the story of Adam and Eve through the tune of Eiffel 65's Blue dabba dee dabba die and see if the sort of whimsical nature of one could counterbalance the harrowing nature of the other well okay so this is a five-part retelling of the fool in genesis from eve's perspective to the tune of Eiffel 65's blue dabba dee um and don't feel like you have to sort of clap or anything in between i think the, the weighty silence will add to it if anything okay part one spare rib i'm new Adam, Eve, Adam, hi. Am I bleeding? You're fine. As for me, I'm alive. Part two, temptation. Oh, cool. Apple tree and a viper telling me I should try. I believe that I might. Part three, who told you you were naked? Hey, boo. Me, oh me, my, oh my. That's your penis. Let's hide how obscene all this time. Part four is banishment. Oh poo, how naive now we'll die. No more Eden for I as we leave paradise. And part five is just called blue. I'm blue, dabba dee dabba die. Dabba dee dabba die, dabba dee dabba die. Well, thank you. Thank you. You should do that on Radio 4 when they do the like a serious religious bit. Yeah, as a sort of thought for the day. No, I've I got asked to do one by a production company as a tester that was gonna go out at two AM and then they told me that there wasn't enough religion in it. Same <laughs> I swear to God, literally same. I wrote they wanted me to do uh, is it called Pause for Thought? I think it's Pause for Thought on Radio Four. They wanted me to do a thing about heaven and what I guess I, I, I did it as like what I imagined heaven to be and blah blah blah. And they said, yeah, there's not enough religion in it. And I didn't want to force in religious stuff. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I felt a bit disingenuous, so I just left it. Yeah, I'm the same. Because I think, you know, growing up in that context has informed who I am and, and what I talk about. But I think as soon as you, like, start it off with, as Jesus said, then anyone who's not into that is sort of switched off and I think the whole point of stuff like that in everyday life is that anyone can benefit from 
you know taken a moment to think about what heaven is for them or whatever it doesn't have to be a yeah yeah specific thing yeah it was quite enough because i thought there was enough religion in mine as well and they were like ah put some more i was like i don't want to like fake being more religious <laughs> you know it's weird getting asked to do stuff like that i got asked i had a meeting with a production company who wanted to get a bunch of Muslim comedians to do this, some sort of reality show for Channel 4. Not, not like a silly, like more of a serious doc type yeah. where they sort of travel around the world and then end up going to Hajj in Mecca, like the pilgrimage thing. Okay. And I thought, oh, that sounds cool. Then I thought, wait, if I'm going to, I've never done it. I've not done the pilgrimage thing yet. I yeah. should do it, you know, I should do it one day. If I do that, I should be doing it for Channel 4. <laughs> <laughs> that's sure it's not right is it yeah it's weird isn't it religion and entertainment i think with with the harry and chris stuff we make more overt christian references in some of our songs and when we play somewhere like Greenbelt or at the conference for 200 vicars it's a real like knowing laugh and celebration but when we do that in a secular environment there's sort of people getting ready to laugh at religion because it's so often the butt of the joke it's not considered cool is it it's weird like it's really odd as well like being a christian comedian i guess is like people would think of it as lame because being atheist is much more you know ricky gervais type um but being muslim isn't as bad because i guess because <laughs> everyone, everyone slags muslims off generally so like me if i talk about it on stage that's like kind of interesting to people thank you so much i think it's it's probably time to end normally i end with something else so just to finish off can you tell your joke about horses because i really like it i don't remember it all right i'll try my best so audience this is me trying to remember a joke i used to do harry this is a joke that it was one of those which not everyone would always get it which is probably why i abandoned it because it's weird and sometimes it'd kill and then other times people were just confused. Okay, so the joke is, it's about how, because I'm from London, I'm from the city, I'm not used to going to the countryside, but I have gigs around the UK now, and I go to, like, basically farmy type areas that kind of scare me a bit because I'm not used to it. And I had one in Yorkshire somewhere, in, like, a random, not, not like a city, like, random bit of Yorkshire, which was just, like, you know, big fields and stuff. And I got a bit lost walking to my gig, um, I didn't know where I was, so I was a bit scared. And I looked up and a horse walked past me. And the only time I'd ever seen a horse before was if it was a police horse in London. And what I learned that day is that if you go to the countryside in the UK, all the horses are unemployed. That's it. <laughs> and sometimes that is like people love that. And then other times it was like a more of a confused silence. I love that joke so much. And I love that in the show I saw you create a scenario later on where you tell that joke to other people so as an audience i get to hear it twice oh yeah it was a callback yeah no i stopped i, I abandoned it because um yeah i just came up with other stuff well i think that's interesting as well as a poet you can sort of do old poems again but i think as a comedian if you tell the same jokes again and again it's frowned upon or it i think there'll be some you come back to maybe but I think there's more of a turnover. In my mind, I just I just replace jokes when I think I come up with something better. 
Yeah, so it's not like it's not like I have a twenty-minute set and then a new twenty. It's just that yeah. stuff just keeps replacing it gradually. Like I had a whole opening bit I used to always do about basically the joke was about how girls like it's always in the press that uh, Muslim girls in the UK run off to marry ISIS guys in like Syria or whatever, um, and the joke was that I don't understand why they're running off marrying terrorists when there's single. There's award-winning single comedians in the UK. It's a joke about me. But just, I don't really, I just kind of wanted to do less stuff about being Muslim a little bit as well. Yeah. Because I get so, not that I'm not open to talk about it, but I get pigeonholed so much by TV, like production companies and stuff yeah. now. I literally only get asked to do stuff around race and religion. And I'm just like, and it's, it's usually not very good stuff as well. It's quite lame ideas. So I'm just, yeah, you know, yeah. Wow. Thank you for doing this on that note. Thanks so much for having me. Um, you're very welcome. Can I plug my YouTube series? Yeah, please do. Please. If you, I, I think if you find me, I mean, if you find my Instagram, if you just Google my name, you'll pretty much find it. It's called, yeah. it's my acting school of excellence. And it's a weird parody type um, spoof, ridiculous little chat show thing about acting. It's pretty stupid. And I'm releasing them weekly as well. All right. Well, thank you and goodbye. Thanks, man. Love you. Love you. There we go. A loving end to a lovely episode. Thank you, Valal, for coming on. Thank you to you for listening. As well as everything promised, there was some improv comedy, some interpretive dance, and some Eiffel 65, What Is Not To Love. If you have enjoyed this, please do subscribe, look out for future episodes, have a gander at past ones, tell your friends, all that good stuff. If you want to donate to the sort of well-being of me and other guests, you can do so via the Kofi link in the bio. Otherwise, if you want to watch an episode live, it is 7pm on my Instagram page, which will also be in the bio for this. Or if you would like to get in touch, you can find me on any any of the social media and just say hello suggest a future guest whatever you want otherwise live your lives stay safe see you soon bye